It is good to worship with you this morning, brothers and sisters. Now, I've heard it said, I've heard some of you say it, I've said it, that if we aren't aware of history, we're bound to repeat it. I think that's sage advice, and I'm curious if some of you know or some of you can remember what people in the 1960s were worried about. Uh, Kids, that was before the 2000s, never mind. Uh, Well, thinking back to the 1960s, perhaps you think about sharp political divisions that only heightened with the assassination of JFK. Tense racial issues that escalated with the assassination of Martin Luther King Jr. Well, what about fears of communism, the Vietnam War, and concerns over a sexual revolution that threw biblical understandings of marriage and sexual identity out the window? Well, really there is nothing new under the sun, is there? While many today are convinced things are worse, more accurately... Things are simply amplified by social media and the advent of 24-hour news that didn't exist 60 years ago. The manifestation of our concerns today have many parallels. Sharp political division, critical theories, international conflict, sexual choices contrary to Scripture. And if you were to go back to the height of the Roman Empire, you would see the same exact issues manifested and expressed in a different way in a different culture. Here is how the great pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones commented on the solution to the crazy world that he found himself in in the 1960s. Quote, What the church needs to do is not to organize campaigns to attract outside people, but to begin herself to live the Christian life. There is one way to counter people being swallowed up by the world, and that is to show we have something infinitely bigger and greater. He continues, If you read the history of the church, you will find it has always been when men and women have taken this Sermon on the Mount seriously and faced it in themselves in the light of it that true revival has come. He wrote that in the 60s. And the same is true today. Dr. Jones would go on to explain that if we want to see a real change in our own heart and in the world, you must go to the Sermon on the Mount. To combat whatever you think is the greatest threat, you must go to the sermon, the doctor argues. So whether it's racism, moral relativism, new sexual expression, expression, Uh, critical race theory, the political party you dislike, or whatever your favorite news channel is trying to drum up as they sensationalize to buy the currency of your attention and money, the answer is the same. The kingdom of God and the rule of Christ must bring change. It's the only thing that will. And for you kids in here who have no idea what we're talking about, let's put it in a category that will apply to you, children. What is the greatest threat in your life? Mom and dad not listening well? Frustration as you navigate how you're wired and what you desire? Feelings of loneliness in a world that's, yeah, 
24 hours, 24-7. Kids, you have your own concerns and threats to your own life, don't you? I think the doctor would argue the same. It's the Sermon on the Mount that is the solution. So we come to a new mini-series. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, we've gone through chapters 1 through 4, and we find ourselves in chapter 5. And I'll make a couple of introductory remarks, and then we'll jump into our passage, which is going to be Matthew 5, 1 through 11. Uh, I'll ask you to grab a copy of the Scriptures, if you haven't already, and turn there. If you are here and you don't have a copy of the Scriptures, you're free to use your phone. We do have copies of the Scriptures in the back as well, if you need one. Take them, that's yours. Well, our our main takeaway this morning, the, the main idea is simply this. True happiness... Don't you want to be happy? True happiness is found in Jesus' kingdom. Now, qualifying remark number one. The greatest sermon, this passage that we're entering into, it must be understood in light of Matthew's narrative that he's been going through. Our scribe has been documenting Jesus' life and earthly ministry, and he's been making the argument that Jesus is the better and the truer son. In name and genealogy, Jesus is connected to the greats of old, like David and Abraham. He's been worshipped, even as an infant, as the king who would come out of Egypt and obey God perfectly. We're Israel and we have not. Jesus' baptism and temptation, his early ministry, point out his fulfillment of old promises. As he fulfills and retraces the steps of Israel... And he begins a ministry that Jeremiah said would fish for the souls of humanity. So we read in verses 1 and 2. I'm just going to read them. This is still my qualifying remark. I'm not getting into it yet. But I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. The text reads, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. Well, Jesus now ascends a mountain, the text reads, not unlike Moses, who had done so so many years before. Moses, as we read in the book of Exodus, ascended to a mountain to receive God's law and God's kingdom ways to put him before the Jewish people. In a better and fuller way, Jesus ascends a mountain and reestablishes the law of God and a life of God in a way that no one would expect. Jesus doesn't need someone to give him a tablet to speak from. As we will see, Jesus' kingship is displayed because he speaks with authority as the God-man. Jesus is the truer and better lawgiver and the better Moses. So we understand this sermon in our passage in light of the whole book of Matthew that he's trying to frame the identity of Jesus so that we would see his beauty and follow him. Uh, Qualifying remark number two, the importance of the Beatitudes. It's really hard to overstate uh, this passage. But our our short consideration of these first 12 verses in this greatest sermon are, are critical. The most important, if you don't understand these first 12 verses, you won't understand the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is very intentional, as is Matthew as he records it, in what comes in order. 
If we fail to understand what's commonly referred to as, as to the Beatitudes, you're going to fall in one of two ditches if you don't understand this passage. Ditch number one is you will come to the conclusion that the Sermon on the Mount cannot be achieved because it's too lofty, it's too high, it's impossible, and then you'll dismiss it. But ditch number two, in the other extreme, is that we'll treat this Sermon of Jesus as a guidepost of a good, principled, and moral kind of living. Both of those are flatly unbiblical. Well, with those two notes of explanation, let's jump into the text. And these characteristics of uh, kingdom living and blessing, I'm going to split them into three groups for us. So as we seek, again, what's the main idea this morning? Happiness is found in Jesus' kingdom. So as we seek that, we first come across happiness in need. Would you read with me verses 3 through 5? Jesus spoke and said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. We are, my friends, immediately faced with the counterintuitive nature of the teachings of Jesus. And really, the differences between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God. Now, I was recently introduced to this idea of the social imaginary. Now, the best I can make of it, I'm not very smart, but the best I can make of the social imaginary is that it is the values and the understandings that we largely accept as a social norm. So I'll give you an example. If I told you time equals money, you'd likely agree with that. You've heard that. It's a common phrase in our culture. But what is time and money and its relationship to one another, biblically speaking? You see, there's things that we say that we're not sure if that's actually what the Bible teaches. So we have these social imaginaries. So in our passage, for example, our world might also conclude that to obtain true happiness, well, how are you going to get happy? It's found, we might hear, by being rich in spirit, laughing with joy, and being self-assertive in life. You might assume that that's how happiness is found. And our world has socially accepted these truths as common sense. It's part of our social imaginary and what it means to be pleased or glad or cheerful. The Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' first words in this great sermon take our social imaginaries and, and our norms and flips them on its head. An honest reading of Jesus' teaching will do that. To be a faithful follower of Christ, we have to constantly take our thinking and put it through the lens of what Jesus actually says. Here, in these verses, we see that blessing or happiness is found in a way opposite from what the world would first think, imagine, or what we've been told. So verse 3, Jesus says, happiness and blessing belong to the poor in spirit. They receive and belong to God's kingdom. This shapes the rest of the passage and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. 
we must understand what it means to be poor in spirit. Now, he very clearly qualifies the poor. Jesus is not talking about if you are poor in personality. And if you are, it's okay. We still like you. But he's not talking about you're you're awkward, you're poor in personality or relationship. He's not talking about if you're poor in love or poor in circumstance or even poor financially. This isn't a character trait that some have and others do not. This is something that the Spirit of God produces in Christians. So, rather, in the economy of God's kingdom, faithful followers of Christ, those who know true happiness, are poor in spirit. There is a poverty that is spiritual in nature. They look and reflect on their own hearts and their own souls, and they see a lack, a failure, sin, and a godless self-sufficiency. They fundamentally see their need. And just as an aside, can I say this is really fundamentally what separates the Christian and the non-Christian. If you're a Christian, you'll see a need spiritually. What's the number one thing that keeps people away from considering Christ? It's not an intellectual concern. What keeps people at bay from receiving Christ is not that they can't wrap their minds around the concept of God. Or even God coming and dying for them. But what really blinds people to the truths of Christianity is a lack of poverty in spirit. Fundamentally, it's pride. That's what stops me. That's what hinders my own relationship with God. Is when I am proud in disposition and I don't think I'm poor in spirit. So the poor in spirit, it says, will receive the kingdom. The one who doesn't come to this position, the one who's not convinced of their poverty in spirit, will never know true blessing and happiness. And they'll never, Jesus says, be a part of God's kingdom. My friends, if you are here this morning and you know nothing of the poverty in spirit, you are not a Christian. It is essential Well, it's going to build on itself. This sounds like just the the most sober sermon ever. And there is soberness to it, but let's build uh, on these Beatitudes. God's people see their poverty, but they don't stay there. It's not that we walk around and woe is me, I'm impoverished, I'm sinful, I'm a wretch. I didn't share this in the first sermon. But I recently rediscovered a journal that I had wrote in. And I was reading passages this week from 2016 and 17. And I'll say that I had, and maybe at times have, a poor understanding of poverty in spirit. Because I view myself as a wretch and nothing else. Well, God doesn't leave us there. Uh, So if you're following my immature ways... Uh, continue on with the Sermon on the Mount. There's more here for us. So this, ne- this need, it builds on itself. God's people see their poverty and they respond in verse 4. Jesus says that happiness and blessing come from mourning. Can you think of anything more countercultural than this? And this is a, reach, uh, a rich teaching of the Scriptures. 
Verses like Psalm 31.10 say this. For my life is spent with sorrow, and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my sin, and my bones waste away. Those in whom the Spirit is actually living and working will see their poverty in spirit and mourn and weep over their sin. Again, this isn't simply a suggestion or a character trait that we're born with. God produces in us, as we follow Him, a sincere brokenness over personal sin. I was talking to someone in between uh, after the first service, and they came up to me and they shared just a, a, an anecdote, a, a personal experience of this truth. And they said, Matt, there's so many times in my life where God has seemed most near, most present. I feel most alive spiritually when I feel a poverty in spirit and I'm mourning, when I'm weeping. That's when God seems the most close. And I would imagine many of you have similar stories. So God produces in those who are following him a a sincere brokenness over personal sin. And I had to wrestle with this question this week in my own life. When was the last time I wept, lamented, and mourned over my turning from God? Jesus says true happiness is found in this kind of life, a mourning life. True comfort is offered to those who follow this kingdom way. Well, the final aspect of need is seen in verse 5 that we read. Blessed are the meek. Those who truly mourn over their sin, they will be meek. And here's how one writer helpfully defines meekness in a biblical way. Um, Daniel Doriani says this. As with poor in spirit, we must not think of meekness as a personality trait. The meek personality suffers indignities without complaint, always aims to please, and never asserts itself. This is not a biblical category. Because for Jesus, meekness is a spiritually given trait, not a disposition. As a character trait is the opposite of ambition and envy. To be meek is to be gentle, humble, and unassuming in approach. The one who knows his own spiritual poverty and lets it guide his behavior. Jesus could be bold, forceful, and confrontational, yet meek. And so can we. See, the mark of biblical meekness is not the absence of being assertive. It's said that rather it's the absence of self-assertion. It's a posture of not elevating self, not forcing your own way, not championing your own preferences, but using and leveraging your life for the sake of other people. This is the way of Christ. You don't think too highly of yourself because you're poor in spirit. Because you're mourning over your own sin. And because you see others as more important than yourself. So what kind of standard and kingdom way is this newer and better Moses declaring from the mountaintops to us? The people of God are fundamentally a people of need. They see themselves, themselves as their greatest hurdle. 
A faithful follower of Christ is promised great joy and blessing in this life. But contrary to the way that the world has taught us, joy, kingdom living, comfort, inheritance, well, it all comes with being in need. So this week, brothers and sisters, would you make it a habit to think carefully and reflect on your own need? Jesus says you'll experience true happiness if you do. And here's a diagnostic question for you to kind of go home with this afternoon. If you are here this morning and you are unhappy, and in a room this size, there's some of us are maybe having a bad week or a bad day. It's early in the year, but maybe it's been a tough year already. If you find yourself unhappy, it may be connected to you failing to perceive just how needy you are. Jesus says happiness comes from being in need. Not forcing and manufacturing your circumstances and the stars to all line up the way that you want. Well, next in our passage, I want us to shift from a happiness that's obtained from being needy to a happiness that is framed in righteousness. So we see this together and we can read it in verse 6. Jesus says this, Blessed. Or happy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Anyone here lacking satisfaction? Me too. There is some debate among academic types now on how many Beatitudes there are. Some say seven or eight, some will argue for nine or ten. Regardless of how many you number, verse six is pivotal and central. For understanding blessing in this passage. Why would someone hunger and thirst for righteousness? That sounds very archaic and old. That sounds a little lame. I hunger and thirst for a lot of things. Why would I hunger and thirst for righteousness? You see, we hunger and thirst for food when we lack. When I don't have something to eat... I'm hangry. I want. I need. That's when I'm hungry and thirsty. So this afternoon, when I make myself a cheese quesadilla and I drink a sparkling water, that's my go-to lunch on a Sunday. I'm hungry. I'm lacking, so I grab. And it's the same thing with a hungry and thirsting for righteousness. Jesus says, recognizing our lack of righteousness... And desiring it brings true joy in this life. But, but then we got to ask, who really hungers and thirsts for this? Have we not all have se- had seasons? Are some, are some of us not right now in a season where we lack a hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Don't we from time to time, even as Christians, find ourselves not interested Can we be honest and say that many days we just don't feel like it? In our desire for spiritual things and and eternal realities, that's just far off. Do we have to pretend on a Sunday morning we're more spiritual than we actually are? Can we admit that sometimes on a Saturday night we are more desirous of YouTube than we are of Jesus? And it's not just with us. But the world around us too. 
we have people in our lives that we care about that have zero hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And we swim in a culture consumed by entertainment and comfort. Rarely, rarely do we allow ourselves to feel any kind of lack or hunger. No time for silence and reflection. Especially any time for needing or wanting God. So how do we get this hunger? Maybe you admit this morning, you'd say, I'm not hungry and thirsty for God. I'm bored. I'm frustrated. God seems far off. I, I, okay, I want a hunger. I want to want to hunger. What do I do? Well, this spiritual formation of, of this kind of reality in our lives, the, the joy and happiness of this blessing, it will only come to those who've experienced verses 3 through 5. You will never hunger for righteousness. You'll never thirst for it if you haven't lived out those first Beatitudes. See, in our American context today, hungering and thirsting is a really difficult concept for you and I. There would be few in here who are currently experiencing the pains of lack, starvation, or emptiness, a desperation for physical food. Kids, you're not really starving. But for those of us who are faithful followers of Christ, those who, by the Spirit of God, have come to know the joy and the happiness of poverty in spirit, mourning over sin, and biblical meekness, when we have those things, when God produces those things in us, there is an aching and a longing for righteousness. An aching and a longing for something that we lack in ourselves. And that is what drives us to Christ and His gospel. We see Christ and His righteousness. We see Christ and His life, His death and His resurrection as beautiful. We long for it. We hunger and thirst for it when we see ourselves most clearly. To say it negatively, if you don't hunger for His righteousness, if the gospel is not appealing to you, then you don't see yourself clearly. Just as you only see the stars against the black backdrop of a dark sky, you will only see the beauty of Jesus and the need of righteousness against the black backdrop of your need. My friends, do we yearn for righteousness? Sometimes, sometimes not. But we should yearn for it first and foremost in our own hearts and in the hearts of others. I'll confess that far too often I don't. See, Jesus' promise to his kingdom followers is that they will be satisfied when they long for it. Which we know is really a longing for him. And every single person in this room is seeking some kind of satisfaction. And Jesus says, I got you. You want satisfaction? I got you. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Talking about social imaginaries, how many of us just think that's so foreign? It feels foreign. We've bought into the lie that if we need satisfaction, we should go out and chase it another way. 
Jesus offers a satisfaction that is not found in a fat bank account, a sexual experience, a great intellect, or the temporary experiences and circumstances of this world. We are citizens of another kingdom, a kingdom where the satisfying of our hungry and thirsty hearts is complete in the righteousness of Christ. If you read this great promise of satisfaction, blessing, and joy, and you're honestly bored or uninterested or just in a rut this week, that's okay. There's grace for you in the gospel of Christ. If you do not hunger and thirst, then go back to verses 3 and 5 and pray that God would shape hunger in you. Well, as you might assume, these Beatitudes, they build on themselves again. And we see our third category of happiness, this time happiness in action. So this is found in our concluding verses of 7 through 12. So read those with me, please. Jesus says this, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Well, now, my friends, it is possible, as I said this morning, to hear these first Beatitudes and be convinced of something like this. Well, the Christian life is really just a downer. To be poor in spirit, to mourn over personal sin, to be meek in character can give the impression that we should just be a bunch of moping Christians who walk around every day with gloom and doom on our face. To come to that conclusion, though, you'd have to ignore the second half of every verse we've read. Promises of an entrance into a kingdom. Promises of comfort and receiving an inheritance. But one of the questions that we might ask is this. Okay, let's say I buy into it. And can I just be honest for a moment? This is the question of my own heart every single day. You may not have heard a pastor say this, but... I am leery at following Christ. I am. Because one of the things I'm constantly wrestling with is this. Jesus, if I follow you, if I actually pray and you shape these kingdom characteristics in me, if I hunger and thirst for righteousness, will I really be satisfied? Or am I going to be missing out? I think about that all the time. God, if I really follow you, will I be satisfied? And what does this life produce? What will my life look like tomorrow on a Monday if I really bought into this? Well, here in this teaching, we see a life of following his kingdom and his ways will be one of action. The Christian life is not one where we come and gather even on a Sunday morning and we download some biblical data. This is not the matrix. We do not upload biblical teaching and say, well, good day now. We don't memorize cute verses and sew them on pillows and say, well, good day. We're good. We're set. 
But the Christian life, when God shapes the kingdom of God in you, you will act. You will leave here and be a faithful follower of Christ who impacts the people around you, in your family, in your coworkers, in your neighbors. All right, what was I, what was I saying here? Uh, I want us to notice how each action is, is tied back to those first verses in need. So I'm going to put something on the screen here. And the structure of the Beatitudes is very Jewish. So there's this pattern. And Linda, you can keep it up there while we're going through these. You'll see quickly how many of the Beatitudes, or how many I'm operating on. Um, here for our consideration, I'm putting verses 10 through 12 under the Beatitude of Peacemakers. So before we get there, let us consider, uh, consider mercy for a moment. Who, who is able to be merciful? Who extends mercy? Who is able to hold back judgment or anger or accusation that someone might deserve? Who can do that? It's those who know the blessing and happiness of being poor in spirit. That's the pattern it follows in the text. Being merciful is connected to being poor in spirit. Uh, Dan Doriani, again, he says it way better than I could, so I'm going to quote him here. This idea of mercy, he says this, When Jesus blesses the poor in spirit, he promotes mercy, for the poor in spirit are merciful. When we recognize our spiritual poverty, our weakness and sin, we see the weakness and sin of others differently. If we are poor in spirit... We come to understand our own failings and develop a certain patience with them. And as a result, we learn to be tender, empathetic, patient, and compassionate with the failings of others. We no longer condescend asking, what's wrong with him? Parents, you've ever said that? Or we might say, how could she ever do that? We know because we're poor in spirit, that we could do or have done the same thing that we're judging them about. When we see a troubled friend, we empathize. We now ask not, what's your problem? Or how did he ever get into that ridiculous situation? We say, how can I help? How can I extend mercy and meet this person where they are in this moment? Faithful followers of Christ act. We act. We extend mercy. And we don't do it merely because it's the good thing to do. It is. And we don't just simply do it because we think it will please God. It will. But we act and extend mercy because out of the overflow of our heart, we've been shaped by Christ and His gospel. We see our own poverty in our own hearts and we graciously bend to others around us. But our action is seen in purity as well. Look again at verse 8. Following the chiastic pattern here, those who are pure in heart are those who mourn over their sin. Jesus' description of true joy, blessing, and happiness develops a fuller kingdom reality than those who were trying to follow the Old Testament law. Moses laid out the commands and the ways of God, and unfortunately, in the Old Testament and even today, 
it can turn into this form of external piety. You know what I'm talking about? People who uh, maybe are the Jesus pretenders. They may do and say all the right things, but just in their spirit and in their heart, they're far from God. Well, one of the major, I don't know, you know, one of the major criticisms of Jesus, I think, as you read the scriptures, was that for many religious people in his day, their following of God had become a merely external religion. All outward, not inward. Their good deeds, actions, and outward purity, it was all sham. They were not pure in heart. You see, my friends, to be pure in heart means to live without compromise. To have a heart that mourns over personal sin and rejoices in the comfort and forgiveness they've received in Christ. They're compelled for their yes to be yes and their no to be no. It compels them, the pure in heart, not simply to recite biblical truth, but to live it. Not just to say we have a mission as Jesus followers, but to do it. Do you mourn over your sin? Well, then the Spirit will enable purity in your actions and motives. Or to put it more negatively, when we act with hypocrisy, when our private life and our public life don't match up, it's because we're not mourning. Now, a clear example of this was uh, written in the work of Edwin Black. He wrote a book about 20 years ago, and the title of the book is called IBM and the Holocaust, and I just recently became aware of it. And in this book, it lays out a case which demonstrates that many American companies profited by collaborating with Nazi Germany in private, while in public, they supported the cause of justice in the war. So American companies like IBM, Ford and General Motors, Standard Oil and Chase Manhattan sold what they could to Hitler and his gang and they made crazy money to the point that some of them even received Germany's Merit Cross Award for their contributions to Germany as Americans in World War II. What's the point? That's sickening. It's sickening because there's a lack of purity in heart. Private life and public life were not matching up. And in Jesus' way, he puts it plainly. Those who mourn over their sin. Those who take it seriously. There'll be a purity. There'll be a consistency. There'll be an integrity. There'll be a shaping of the gospel. My friends, I feel like this is, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about. You want to know what's really going to change us and the world around us? When the church acts and functions like the church. Purity in heart, in our private lives and in our public lives. Well, may the Lord help us. This last action we see in verses 9 through 12, and it's this idea of peacemaking and enduring persecution. Now, staying with our pattern of of the, the pattern in front of you on the screen, who are the peacemakers? 
Who is able to stand when reviled? Well, it's the meek. The meek are able to do this. Here's how one writer explains it. The meek become peacemakers for two reasons. The meek know that they are without merit. The meek stop promoting themselves, stop grasping for privileges and recognition. When they stop demanding those things, peace tends to emerge. Because most strife stems from self-assertion. Warring tribes trust the meek to make peace between them because the meek aren't seeking their own advantage. My friends, when we find ourselves angry, frustrated, and disappointed that we're not getting our own way, when we lack peace in our hearts, it's because we have not experienced the spirit shaping and bending our hearts to this meek posture. If you have an issue with someone right now in your marriage, at work, in this church, if you have conflict with someone, it may be because you have a spirit that is not meek. You are not a peacemaker. And in a world where no one can talk without assuming the worst, try it. Try to say something and someone not take it the wrong way or assume on your motives. It's impossible. In a world that seems ever more divided and antagonistic towards one another, in a world where preferences rank supreme, and anyone who denies what I want or what I feel is attacking me, in this world, my friends, where are the peacemakers? Where are the faithful followers that bring peace and the peace of Christ and His gospel? Theologically, we know this is the solution that the world desperately needs, that we need. The peace of knowing God. The peace of being changed by God, living for God. Hearts shaped by meekness, understood through the hungering and thirsting of Christ's righteousness, will receive the kingdom of God. Brothers and sisters, throw your social imaginaries and norms out of the window. What the world has told you often does not line up with the teachings of Jesus. The better Moses has laid out a kingdom command and a kingdom way on your life. True happiness. True happiness is found in Jesus' kingdom. Be happy and see the blessing of a person, of being a person in need. Experience the happiness and the blessing of desiring the righteousness of Christ both in your own life and the world around you. And live out that blessing by being a man or a woman shaped by the gospel for action. If you're not satisfied, if you're not happy, it's okay. We have ruts and seasons and moments and years can I encourage you, if you are here and you're stuck, it's okay. Consider that Jesus would have you pour your heart out over these beatitudes and give it a try. Seek happiness in the kingdom of God and see what happens. And that's not just for those of you who don't know Christ personally, who've never trusted him and aren't following him, who don't have a new heart. That's for you. 
But for those of us who are faithful followers of Christ, we got stuff going on. And maybe it's been a while since you've pressed into Jesus' kingdom. So may the Lord enliven our hearts to this kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. May we walk as pilgrims and strangers and exiles in a world that is only temporarily our home. I don't care if you live in Baxter or Brainerd or you're a 612 and you're here for the weekend, you're cool here, that's all right. I don't care what your physical address is. If you are a faithful follower of Christ, your real home, your real kingdom is that celestial city. So may we live this week the mission of Christ. May we reproduce faithful followers of Christ and be a part of the solution of all the mess that we see and experience. Will you complain about it? Or will you press into kingdom living and be changed and see change around you? We need a solution to the messed up world. And Dr. Jones, not Indiana Jones, but the Martin Lloyd-Jones, he said plainly, and it's laid out for us, he says, in this greatest sermon. So as we go through the Sermon on the Mount these next weeks, may we hear it, may we obey it, and may we know true happiness living for his kingdom and not our own. Would you pray with me? Father, that is our big ask and our big prayer request. That we would know the happiness and the joy of Christ. Jesus did talk about this in another place. In John chapter 15, it's recorded that Jesus told us as we're connected to him, we're like branches connected to a vine. And he said, all this vine business I've told you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. God, remind us this morning that we do not need to manufacture our own joy. We don't need to scheme to produce it. And all our attempts to do so have been empty. Everyone in here has sought satisfaction outside of you and have failed to obtain it. So would you impart your joy in us? Would you show us that you're real and powerful, that you're caring and kind? And will we live differently because of it? We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.